Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Uh, we're just about to start worship, so if you would, if you're able, stand to your feet and prepare your hearts to just give God praise. We want to be ready this morning. Praise God. Letting go of every single dream, I lay each one down at your feet. Every moment of my wandering never changes what you see. I try to win this war, I confess. My hands are weary.
I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never failed me. And all my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Cause all my life you have been faithful, oh yeah. And all my life you have been so, so good, yeah. With every breath that I am able, oh I will sing of the goodness of God. I love your voice. Yeah. You have led me through the fire and in darkness nights. You are close like no other. Yeah. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. And I have lived in the goodness of God. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
achievements, abundance that was unthought of so many years ago, and technology that was indistinguishable from magic not so long ago. And so often we're so busy patting ourselves on our backs for what we've accomplished, we fail to acknowledge you in the mix. You're not only in the mix, you created the mix and you are the mix, and we are just ingredients in the great mixing bowl of creation, but we are grateful be here in this time and place to acknowledge you and the greatest gift of all, your son who stepped down from heaven to earth in a much more primitive time, lived a sinless life, and yet took our sins upon himself to discharge the debts we accumulate through our sinful nature. Lord, hear the prayers of your people here at La Jolla Community Church, and as we step off into the week, please strengthen our faith, guide our steps, and help us to use whatever time, talent, and treasure you give us in whatever measure to do our part to advance your kingdom in this fallen world. Lord, hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we're so glad that you're here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out the Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. Do you know someone in 3rd through 8th grade? If you do, don't forget to tell them that it's Nerf Games this Friday, September 29, from 6 to 8 p.m. at LJCC. Have them bring their own Nerf gun and we will provide protective glasses, Nerf ammunition, game strategies, food, and lots of fun. For more information or questions, please contact Connie. We'll see you there. Hey, I'll see you all at the Nerf games, I'm assuming. Uh, where else can you find an excuse to run around like a maniac shooting Nerfs at people? If you did this at the mall, it would not end well. But here, we make it possible for you to live an adventure of adventures and uh, have a great time. Uh, one year, we, were, we had one of these events, and 
wouldn't you know, our dear neighbors who are now, uh, they're not open for business right now, but the policemen down the street all came cruising in uh, with their cars uh, because they had heard that there was an outrageously out-of-control gang shooting up the church down the street. And it was a bunch of kids with their, you know, soft pellets. And, and so they were much chagrined to say, well, officer, we were just having a youth night. And the guy, you could see the officers going, wow, I wish I could be here to do this. But um, next time, just give us a call, would you, and let us know you'll be doing this? Yeah, of course, you'll do that. Well, uh, each one of us has a question about ourselves that we ask the world to answer. Every one of us sitting in this room, everybody you know, anybody you've ever met or will meet, has a question about themselves that they're asking the world to answer. And you might say, I don't believe it. Well, um, it's true. And it's so much a part of who we are, it's like asking a fish to describe water. So much a part of who we are that we have one of seven questions. Now, there's a lot of other questions we have, but these are sort of seven primal questions. Uh, we talked last week about a book, uh, by Mike Foster uh, called The Seven Primal Questions. We're not preaching out of the book. We're recommending you read the book because we're preaching on these themes. And he does a pretty good job of talking about these themes uh, and these seven questions. And, of course, you look at every one of the questions and say, that's me. No, that's, well, that's, that, maybe that's... And yet, if you, if, you, if you hang around long enough and reflect on them, you'll say, yeah, there's one question above all those seven that I tend to live out of. Uh, and, of course, once we answer that question to the affirmative, we immediately <laughs> move on to another question. And so you might, in the course of your life, um, find that different questions emerge as, this is the question I'm asking right now. Here's the crazy thing about us as human beings. We're so aware of things that threaten us, uh, but we're unaware of the things that motivate us. We're aware of threats, uh, somebody doing something better than us, something happening to take something away from us. Most of us experience change not as gain but as loss until we figure out, oh, there might be a gain here. We're, we're constantly on alert as human beings, and yet we're not living consciously or deliberately or intentionally enough to say, what is going on inside of me? Because for one person, uh, it's a massive threat. The door of the plane just opened, and you're thinking, good God, what happened? What's going to happen? And then you remember, oh, that's right, I signed up for that, that, that um, parachute class, that skydiving class, and I'm sitting in, in the last seat watching everybody else lining up and jumping out of a plane on purpose, deliberately, intentionally. Um, so two people can look at the same thing with a whole different, entirely um, uh, different point of reference. So one of the things we're trying to do in this series is to say, well, how do we live intentionally and deliberately to say, who am I? What motivates me? Uh, not to shame ourselves or to say, yeah, that's me. I talked to a guy this week who said, I just need to get out of my head. I have all the, I have this critical voice in my head. I keep telling myself I'm not worthy. And I'm thinking this series, I said, oh my gosh, this guy's question is I'm not good enough or I'm not welcome or there's some question I'm not successful. I don't know what it is yet, but he's saying this, this is where I go when things get tense. I don't know where you go, but here are the questions. Am I safe? Am I secure? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I successful? Am I good enough? Do I have a purpose? Just reading those quickly and you listening to them, did one of them strike you as, uh, I think that's mine, or all of them are mine? Okay, then as you settle in and, and, and live with these questions and the implications of them, probably one will emerge. 
and that will tell you not everything you need to know about yourself, but it'll tell you enough to know about yourself that you can lean into that, and instead of running away from it or hiding it or burying it or projecting it on other people, denying it, blaming it, you can say, okay, what does this say about me and where I am? And once we start to lean into that, we start to figure out that that might be a superpower for us. If you're not feeling safe and you say, I don't even want to go there, well, if you go there and then unpack, why is it that I'm not feeling safe? What's contributing to that? It might be that as you start to understand who you are in Christ, and maybe it's the help of a therapist or a small group, or who knows, all the ways God will help you get to that point, you'll all of a sudden realize, you know what, I don't have to worry about being safe anymore. I am safe in Him. And now you become hyper-aware of people who are maybe asking that question. And rather than mugging them and trying to fix them, because you've fixed it, so to speak, you can say, I, I, I can bring empathy and compassion to this person versus being frustrated with them. Um, uh, Biff woke up one morning, it was a Sunday, uh, and he said, I, I don't want to go to church. Honey, you got to go to church. No, I can't go to church. I just do, I do not want to go to church. Why do I have to go to church every Sunday? And, uh, and his wife said, because you're the pastor. I mean, so, you know, what, what was going on with him? I don't know. But we asked these questions, and at some point, uh, somebody wakes up on a morning and says, you know, I don't feel like going to church. And, and, and the person in their life says, why not? And they said, I don't know. I don't really have a good reason. Uh, well, maybe if you figure it out while we're driving over to church, and as you sit through the service, maybe on the way home, you'll figure out why you were feeling that way. And, of course, you might walk away and drive away saying, I'm so glad I went. Wow, because you needed that message? No, you did, and I'm glad to be here to witness it. So, uh, no. What question are you asking? I don't know. Am I safe? Am I secure? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I successful? Am I good enough? Do I have a purpose? Why do we feel compelled to ask and answer these questions? Why does everybody on the planet feel compelled to ask and answer these questions? Consciously or unconsciously? People who would say, I'm an atheist or an agnostic or a fully devoted follower of Jesus are asking the same questions often. Well, uh, biblically and theologically, the theology is just how we build out our understanding of what the Bible means in the real world. How we apply the, the revealed Word of God in the Bible in the real world is, is doing theology. Everybody is a theologian, sometimes not a very good one. We have funky theology. Um, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I pray, but if that doesn't work, I, I go to the horoscope and I go, what would I, you know, you go, really, why do you, well, if I just reposition the crystal, I feel so much better. What? So we have all kinds of ways to come at this, whether you're a believer or not a believer. But why? Why do we feel compelled to ask and find answers for these questions? Why do we ask people around us to answer this question for us? Why do we ask jobs? Why do we ask accomplishments? Why do we ask failures? See, in every situation, we ask people or things or experiences, big moves forward or steps back, one of these questions. And we're always hoping to get the affirmative. Yes. But we're afraid we're not. And if we get any hesitation, or a person not even knowing the context, they say, why are you even asking that question? Or why are you behaving this way? Because we're not reformulating the question as a question. We're just doing something. And the person realizes, you're, you want something here, and I don't know what you're wanting and how I give it to you. But underlying this question is this wound we all bear due to our alienation from God. That's what the Bible tells us. We all have this un, un, <laughs> unhealed wound. 
Now, as we meet, as we meet Christ, he wants to heal that wound in us. But often then, we're afraid to even bring that forward. Oftentimes, people find themselves going to a church, but bringing the question with them into a church, but not wanting an answer because it's too scary. That's why oftentimes when, when people are going through really difficult times, they'll disappear from church. Well, why would you disappear? Well, I don't want to see people in my weak moment or my despair or my shame. I'm supposed to be, you know, people who go to church have it together. And I say, you know, people come to church because they do not have it together. I remember one time sitting um, at Harry's Coffee Shop in the village of La Jolla, and this earnest, very successful guy was trying to explain things to me, how they work in La Jolla and at this particular church. And he said, you know, people come to this church because they've, they've, they've kind of arrived. They've, they've achieved something. And they come to this church because they feel worthy to be here. And, you know, you're talking about the Bible and Jesus, and you're really ticking a lot of people off. Because I'm offending them? No, what you're saying is offending them, that, they, that they're not, they, don't have what, they don't have what it takes because they need Jesus. Well, they did show up at church voluntarily, right? They weren't mugged and kidnapped and brought to church. Because no. And he starts, he's explaining it. And I, I said, look, I really, really, really appreciate you. I mean, I wanted to be a smart aleck, but I just said, I really do appreciate you telling me this. But here's the thing. What I hear you describing, just to make sure we're getting the messages clear. What I hear you describing is a country club for saints, not a hospital for sinners. In fact, it sounds like you're describing La Jolla Country Club. A member with all the rights and privileges of membership and people that would do your beck and call. Not to do anything to upset you, to make sure it's so comfortable. A cocoon-like experience that allows you to show up and get what you paid for. I said it more gently than that, but he said, well, I guess you could see it that way. And I said, yeah, because if we do that, we're missing the fact that God isn't calling us to make people uncomfortable when they come to church. He's calling us to give people the hope that he alone can bring. And if that makes us uncomfortable, well, he takes us from that place of uncomfortable to the place of comfort and awareness. And if I'm doing anything to offend you by how I'm saying it, then I want to repent of that and apologize to the congregation. But if this is what the word of God is saying, then we all have to sit in front of Jesus and say, what does this mean for me? So you see where we're going on this? We're not ever judging anybody, but we do make observations and we do make um, declarations of this is what God's word says. I wonder what it looks like for us to come to terms with it. So how, do we, how did we get the wound? Well, we find out in the Bible that says we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for false images. We think we have a better deal than God. But you, yet we learn, uh, we yearn and long for a yes to validate our identity and our worth and to fix somehow this core wound that we have. So the first big idea is this. God created us safe, secure, loved, wanted, successful, good enough, and with a purpose. The first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, tell us that this is how God created us. He created all things. He called them good. He created us. He said it's good, good. It's very good. And what was embedded and integrated into that goodness that God created us in, with, and for. Safety, security, being loved, being wanted, being successful at, at being good stewards of his creation. We had a big job to do. That was our purpose. And he said, you're good enough for this because I'm good enough in you. So it started awesome. Nobody was asking the question, am I safe, am I safe? No, it was, wow. So this is what it means. You know, this is how it feels to be in the presence of God and to walk with him. But then sin uh, deceives. Uh, sin deceives. 
Sin, capital S. Little S, sins, things we do. But this big idea of sin is our rebellion, our resistance to God puts us in jeopardy. It actually kills us spiritually. It actually changes the way the world feels and the way the world looks and the way the world works. Everything is just a few bubbles off plumb. So it deceives us, it distracts us, it denies us God's shalom. That's what the Bible is telling us. God wants us to have the shalom of God. That's just not a, you know, a, a greeting or a, or a, you know, a goodbye in, in Israel. Shalom, shalom, the versions of it, coming or going. No, it's the deep, deep resonating peace and prosperity of the presence of God. All is right in the world where you have God's shalom. And so God's saying, my shalom is here for you. It's not a superficial piece that denies reality. It's a profound piece that takes us into the very core of what is real. But we want heaven, we don't want God. We want heaven, we don't want God. I've had so many conversations over the years with people about this. Not that exact phrase, but the functional um, content of that phrase. Hey, all this stuff you're talking about, Steve, is great, but I can do good without any of this stuff you're trying to put on me. I can make a great world. I'm a good enough person. I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm not going to see God there. I'm going to see all my peeps. I'm going to see my pets. I'm going to see, wow, a heaven with no God? That's not heaven. That's, a, that, that's called imaginary, not imaginative. It's wishful thinking, and it's a fool's errand, according to the Bible. Because the fool says in their heart there is no God. And a fool can have a PhD or a billion dollars a stunning sterling resume, a really great character even. But this is the dilemma. We want heaven and we don't want God. Tomorrow is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, nine days ago was Rosh Hashanah, uh, Rosh Head Shana year, head of the year. It's the new year last, last 10 days ago. Followed by, 10 days later, uh, Yom Kippur, the holiest day, the most forbidding an intimidating day of the year uh, for Israel because they said its idea is not looking ahead, it's looking back. Thank God I survived a year. But how much sin did I commit in that year? And so Yom Kippur is a deep, deep day of atonement to, to say I need to atone for my sins. Now it's such a heavy burden to have our sin, our wound, unresolved, weighing heavy on us. We need that atonement. We need to be at one with God. It's a day of repentance for the sins of the past year. Why is this embedded in us? Well, Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is where folks who, who are down on church and leave church, I just didn't like what they were saying. There must be a lousy church. Yeah, they were saying that all fall short and, you know, <laughs> by sin from the glory of God. That's really, that ticks me off and offends me. Well, that's horrible that they would say that to you. Did you stick around for the second half of the service? Why? Well, because this is how it finishes. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We start with the bad news, and then there's the good news. The bad news is, hey, you have this tumor. We're going to do a biopsy and see if it's benign or if it's cancer. That's very bad news. Well, it's not yet. And then the next call is, it, mm, it's cancer. That's horrible. Well, actually, we can do this, this, and this, right? But if they said, you know, it's a tumor. Don't, everybody gets tumors. Go play golf. Don't, don't even worry about it. Or as they used to say, um, was it Sesame Street? Put a Band-Aid on it. Or one of those kids' shows. Put a Band-Aid on it. 
No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This, this justified freely is, oh, it's not a big deal. It's fine. It's, it's, you're right. You're in jeopardy. You're in peril. But here's my solution for you. Did you ever read that book or have it read uh, to you or you read it to your kids called Are You My Mother? Everybody familiar with that? It came out in 1960. To this day, it's in the top 100 best books ever written for children. Every poll that they do of the, the, the education world says this is one of the 100 top best books ever written. And I call this a, 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 a redemptive analogy embedded in the culture. It was just a book about a little bird who hatches out while mom is out getting food, and the little bird is asking everything he encounters, you know, are you my mother, are you my mother, are you my mother? And they're finally reunited. It's a, it's a, it's a redemptive analogy. Every time uh, we read this to our grandkids, I just think, oh my gosh, uh, this is a redemptive analogy. What do I mean by that? Well, we're like the little bird and are you my mother, but in our case, we're searching for God. Are you my savior? Are you my savior? Are you my savior? I know, I'll get married. I'm going to marry a Savior. That works so well, you should do it. <laughs> this marriage is tough. You know what? Let's have a Savior. Let's have several Saviors. Let's get a matched set of Saviors in his house. Oh, this is really, really hard. Yeah, I know. Let's get a Savior. Uh, let's see. Look up therapist. I have a presenting problem. It's his kid. Oh, come on and talk to us about your kid. The kid talks to the therapist for two minutes. And the doctor goes, hey, would you just hold that thought? Mom, Dad, come on. I'd like to talk to you. Right? In our hopes, our worries, our strivings, we ask the question we want answered about ourselves. Are you my mother? Are you my savior? Are you my friend? Are you my God? And we can't help but ask the question because we're designed by God to want these things. Safety, security, to be wanted, to be loved, to be successful, to be good enough, to have a purpose. And of course, what we find is when we do turn to God, He says, yes, this is how I made you. This is what I want for you. And your sin is serious, but I have, I have, an, I have something to get us through your sin to my grace. And this is why I, I quoted this verse last week. Paul writing to the Corinthians now, 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. I will save, I will save, I will save, I will redeem, I will redeem, I will redeem. Turn to me, find your life in me. Come to me, and in Christ he fulfills this promise with a big, massive yes. Which brings us to the second question, am I secure? We answered the question last week, am I safe? At least we took an effort at, at framing it to answer it biblically and theologically. Am I safe? This week we're talking about this second question, am I secure? And security is having what we need to live. <clears throat> it's not, it sounds like safety, safety and security could be two sides of the same coin. But security is more about the material stuff we need to live. Health, wealth, etc. Am I secure? When is enough enough? You know, Rockefeller's response was just a little bit more. How do you know when enough is enough? Most importantly, enough of what? Enough of what? Now, we don't romanticize poverty, but uh, I have met happy, poor people. I have met actually more unhappy, wealthy people. Having lived most of my adult life in Pasadena, 
Newport Beach and La Jolla, I've met a lot of miserable, wealthy people. I've also met heartbreakingly poor people who are suffering under their poverty. So I'm not romanticizing either one. If you're rich, you're miserable. If you're poor, you're happy at all. I'm just saying, security uh, is a question that everybody asks. And then the question we, are not, we need to ask back is, well, what is enough? Enough of what? When is enough enough? Money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Money can buy a clock, but not time. Money can buy a book, but not knowledge. Money can buy food, but not an appetite. Money can buy position, but not respect. Money can buy blood, but not life. Money can buy medicine, but not health. Money can buy sex, but not love. Money can buy insurance, but not safety. What a downer of a message. No. What an eye-opening message. What an eye-opening message. What is enough? Enough of what, right? There's nothing inherently wrong or evil with wanting security in this insecure world. Why? Because we're made to want security. It's wired into us by God. So there's no apologizing. Yeah, I need security. I wish I had more money. I wish I had more better health. That, that's natural. That's a gift to you from God to resonate that way. The concern is when I don't need anything, I just want to die. That's the one where you go, lean in close and go, really? You're denying yourself food? You're doing these self-destructive things? What, what's going on here? So the question is, what does security look like in a world at odds with God's kingdom? What does security look like in a world that naturally is at odds with God's kingdom? That is, we resist God's kingdom though we yearn for it. We want the things of God that we're not sure if we want to put the weight on His promises, even if Jesus claims to be the yes to those. I know that feeling. Maybe you do too. I knew that feeling before I came to know Christ. I've known that feeling having walked with Christ. How easy it is for me to believe in Christ and yet to, to hedge my bets and live like an agnostic or an atheist. <clears throat> I learned to tithe when I had no money. Giving a dime out of a dollar was not a big stretch. It got serious when it was like, five out of 50? Are you kidding me? The question is, what does security look like in a world at odds with God's kingdom? I was so naive, I believed that God would provide for my needs. And in my naivete, I discovered that God actually does provide for my needs. So then I, be, I moved from being naive to being wise. Hey, God provides for my needs. That's fantastic. John writes it this way in 1 John 2.16. This is why we're living in a world at odds with God's kingdom. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, there's a seriously downer verse if you've ever read one. It sounds so negative at first glance. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes, what? Not from the Father, but from the world? Wow. Sounds like the description of a fraternity. No, I'm kidding. But see, this verse isn't critical of pleasure, beauty, or achievement. The issue here isn't 
pleasure is bad, beauty, aesthetics are bad, and achievement is to be avoided at all costs. No. What it's saying is this. Unapologetic immorality is called corruption, not success, not security. We can take beauty and do crazy things with it. We can objectify it. We can take, you know, um, pleasure and somehow <laughs> twist it. We can take accomplishment, achievement, and somehow compromise it. You know this is true. And so what the Bible isn't saying is that anything that makes you happy or you find attractive or represents any kind of success in your life is to be avoided at all costs. Some Christian groups historically have embraced this notion. If you say, I'm so happy that we did that, that's pride. Or how does this look to me? Oh my gosh. You know, when I hold your hand, it makes my liver quiver. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're wired for this. We're wired for pleasure. We're wired for beauty. We're wired for achievement. We don't have to apologize for those beautiful things that God has entrusted to us. What we have to be aware of is how easily they're corrupted in this world that resists God's kingdom. We can improve on beauty. We can improve on pleasure. We can improve on achievement. I know, achievement. I have to win, but you have to lose. I have to achieve something at your expense, and I'm going to let you know for the rest of my life, your life, I'm not going to fall on my knees and thank God for my achievement. I'm going to walk around gloating about it. You see what happens very quickly? We take something beautiful and right and good, and we twist it, we pervert it, we distort it, and then we say, the Bible is so negative. <laughs> right, yeah, the Bible is negative. That's, that's really helpful to hear. Uh, you've read J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, I'm sure. This is the theme in the Lord of the Rings. It's the theme of corruption. You might have not thought of it that way. It's just an awesome story to read or to watch. But if you haven't read it, read it. And Tolkien, of course, was a, a Christian. Uh, he helped C.S. Lewis come to know Christ. He was a Catholic Christian, so he bummed out when Lewis became a, a, an Anglican. But they were in this small group that met at the Eagle and Child pub, the Baby and Bird. Uh, and there's a plaque to this day in that pub. It's being refurbished. And they would just talk about what they were writing, what they were learning. They talked about their faith. They talked about theology. So if you ask Tolkien, did you write Lord of the Rings as a Christian manifesto? He'd say, no, no, no. But see, out of him comes the theology that God has worked into his life over a long time of walking with Jesus. And so it's not a Christian book, but the theology comes out that we can resonate with. What was the point of the story? Was it about getting and possessing Sauron's golden ring? Everybody seemed to be wanting the ring. Was that the whole point of the story, to get the golden ring? No, not at all. Not at all. It was destroying Sauron's ring. The whole point of the three books is to destroy Sauron's ring, not to possess it. It was about breaking its destructive power to possess the one wearing it. You saw in the book or in the movie, whoever wore it long enough was like, hey, I kind of like this. This is nice. Love the ring. Sauron was the evil Lord of the Ring. The Lord of the Rings. It's Sauron who's the Lord of the Rings. It's Jesus who is the Lord of all. He saves us to be secure in Him. The ring enslaves us. The, the, the ring turns the beautiful things of the world, beauty and pleasure and achievement, into things that are ugly and grotesque and distorted. 
that don't bless people. They wound them and burden them and ultimately destroy them. Uh, I chuckle at Shaquille O'Neal's response to his sons who said, we are wealthy. Uh, somebody told me that this came from Jerry Seinfeld originally, but I thought it was funny nonetheless. Whoever said it, I think it was brilliant. Um, Chuck's, uh, Shaq's sons say, we are wealthy, and, and Shaq corrects him saying, no, we are not wealthy, I am wealthy. Uh, he seems to be saying, it's my ring, guys. It's my ring, not your ring. Now, I think, I, I don't know what he, if this is apocryphal or if this really happened, but if it did happen, I would like to think he'd have the presence of mind to say, boys, sit down, we've got to talk. Yes, we are wealthy. You are the beneficiaries of my success and my achievement, and I want to help you in your own way be uh, successful and to achieve great things. Let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about what achievement is. Let's talk about the responsibility, the burden, the opportunities, the privileges of, of wealth. Isn't that powerful to think about that? This, this big, successful dude. I was in a golf tournament one time and he was there. I thought, this guy is bigger in real life than he is even on you know, TV. That would be such a great conversation to have with your kids. Yeah, we're wealthy. Relative to lots of other things, we're wealthy. Let's talk about what we do with that wealth. Let's talk about the meaning of our wealth. I have a plan to help you appreciate our wealth. I'm not going to leave you any money. But before I don't leave you any money, I'm going to spend a lot of money to prepare you for life. And if you pay attention to those lessons that I make available to you, you're never going to worry about being a wealthy person, whether you teach preschool or you're president of the United States because you'll know what it means to be a wealthy person in any and every situation. This is not happy talk, wishful thinking, idealistic, altruistic thinking. This is bedrock, profound insights into what it means to be, in, to be secure in an insecure world. So if the first point is that God created us with all those things, safety, security, etc., the second point is this. Everyone feels insecure. Everyone feels insecure. Wealth, power, poverty attracts its own kind of insecurity. Poor people feel super secure. Wealthy people, I can guarantee, feel insecure. That's why when you come up to where they live, you have to put a bunch of numbers in the gate. A friend of mine was leading a trip, uh, and a bunch of people going on this, this trip with him. And uh, one of them said, hey, you know, we're, we're going to be going to Israel. I'm really nervous about that. And my friend was saying, they didn't realize that some of the people on the trip, that they didn't know who they were, resilienters, and they had five bodyguards with them on the trip, all of them carrying weapons. They'd gotten clearances to travel internationally, and they were in the presence of these people who were super low-key. Nobody knew they were there, but, but my friend was saying, these people were saying, I'm so nervous about being in this dangerous place, and he, he's thinking, you couldn't be safer than being in this, in this group. Now, the reality of that is that you can be in Israel, and there's all kinds of crazy things happening in the news, and you don't see it. So it's often exaggerated, but you're there and it feels very peaceful and calm. The other part of it is that it doesn't matter how well-armed you are, you're always in danger. There's a Russian fellow whose plane blew up recently. It was a horrible accident. He wasn't planning on it blowing up. He has his own army. Weird coincidence. How do you be secure in an insecure world? More weapons? More wealth? Sorry. On a scale of 1 to 10, how secure do you feel? Do you live paycheck to paycheck? Or perhaps you live paycheck and a half to paycheck? Or, or you don't have a paycheck? 
horribly insecure feeling not to know how you're going to pay your rent or have a, have a place to pay rent for. Horrible feeling. It's a deeply unsettling, bitter-in-your-mouth feeling to feel insecure. If I walk down the street and I walk down the wrong street, will that kid beat me up? If I walk in the wrong part of the campus, will somebody make fun of me? The supermodel, producing a movie, a, a documentary on supermodels right now that's, that's coming out, Cindy Crawford said, my first day of high school, I was walking up the steps with a senior sat, and some senior goes, hey, little Crawford, you have chocolate on your face. She said, for the rest of my high school career, I never walked that way, up that stairway. She goes, only later did I realize my mole became a distinctive part of my beauty. But at that point, I felt so insecure. On a scale of 1 to 10, how secure do you feel? Maybe you're wealthy and you couldn't ask for more, but you realize it or you could go away. It or you could go away. The world Jesus came into was intensely insecure. Everybody's life hung in the balance. All those stories about people coming to be healed, examples of insecurity, often economic insecurity. If that person is sick and they die, if that person has leprosy, there's no economic hope for them. They're outcasts. So when you read the Gospels carefully, you realize Jesus is constantly speaking to people about insecurity. Financial insecurity, health insecurity, political insecurity. Can you imagine? No matter where you go, some Roman could stop you and make you do something you don't want to do. He'd make disparaging remarks about you or your, or your wife or your teenage daughter. Insecure, insecure, insecure. Life was short. Life was cheap. That's why it's so profound that God would come into the world and do what he did. So what's our security? It's not more cash or more control. It's trusting in the Lord and walking in his ways. That sounds so trite. It sounds like a cliche. It sounds perhaps very naive. Except the only reason I can say it with a straight face and actually believe it is that the Lord of the universe came into his world and said this. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are weary burdened, and I will give you shalom. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. You're wearing the yoke of expectations. You're wearing the yoke of fear. You're wearing the yoke of a horrible economy, not in your favor. You're wearing the yoke of being oppressed by people who don't really care about your oppression. In fact, they mock it and misuse it. You misuse their authority to increase your oppression. I've come into the world to speak to these issues, and not just to speak to them, but to do something about them. In this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have, and I will overcome the world. So that includes earning money, giving money, saving money, investing money, spending our wealth wisely. God puts us into gear as learners. Instead of saying, I, I want something, we, say, we need to say, what would it look like for me to be prepared to receive something and to have something? The worst thing you can do, as you all know, is to give somebody who doesn't know anything about money and managing money a lot of money. What happens when the person with money meets the person with experience? The person with money gets experience. The person with experience gets the money. There's an exchange that happens there. 
Everyone can become knowledgeable and wise about wealth. Start with God's Word. The Word of God is packed full of great wisdom about wealth. How, how to think about it, how not to think about it, how to use it wisely. And so you are a steward of God's creation. You have a deep responsibility to be a steward, a manager of what God has entrusted to you as part of His creation. And you might be responsible for small things, be faithful in small things. You might be responsible for big, big, complex things. Be faithful there. It's usually, though, the person who started being faithful in small things to ramped up to be prepared and capable of handling big things. And so there are habits and practices that make us wise stewards and enhance our security. We learn how to properly value stuff. We, need, we move from knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing, as somebody said. We start to see value in all kinds of things that other people don't see value in. A great conversation, a cup of tea with somebody you really care about, a walk in a beautiful place, a song that moves you to tears. And so this includes learning a living while learning to make a life. And they include functional structures. How did your family function or not function financially? Looking back, how did your family function or not function financially? And is your approach similar or different? Are you trying to get back what your family had? Or are you trying to make up for what your family didn't have? What are you doing? What's your go-to plan for being wise with your finances? Uh, my family was often in survival mode. My parents were constantly getting separated, and my mom would be a single mom with five kids trying to make her way in the world. And we'd all be running around getting little odd jobs and trying to get through the week and the month. But then at times when our family had wealth, uh, what did it do? Did it relieve the stress? No, it just revealed our spiritual poverty. So I saw how, as a kid, how wealth or the lack of it didn't make life better or worse. You could be miserable in, miserable in any situation, or you could be happy in either situation. Let me ask you this. Do you live on a budget, or do you have a whack-a-mole approach to your finances? Whack-a-mole would be, ah, that bill, ding, let's pay that bill. Uh, boom, oh, another bill, another, an emergency, ah. And you're constantly having to react to things, and everything is a perpetual crisis for you. Or do you have a budget where you've thought through, I can't control the future, I can at least plan a little bit so I might be able to respond in a way that doesn't feel like my hair's on fire. Poor life management is a deadly trap. Don't spiritualize it. Well, I'm going through a tough time. No, you're not. You created a tough time. You, you manufactured a tough time. Well, does that mean God is not with me? No, He's with you. But just understand that you're spiritualizing by saying, well, the Lord will deliver me. Yes, He will. Here's how He's going to deliver you. It's called fiscal responsibility. Basic equation, you can't spend more than you get. You've got to pay the bills that you've committed to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's millions of people right now in our country ticked off that they have to pay back a, a, a loan. They're irate that they have to pay back a loan. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why some of them got hoodwinked into taking on a loan, or they made bad decisions, but it's a shock. Why is it a shock if you take out a loan that you have to pay it back? And so this is a, it's a big issue. I'm not coming out one side or the other on it necessarily. I'm just saying these are big issues. They're functional structure issues. They're not as God-loving and just or not. It's what choices do you make and what are the consequences of those choices? Now, having made those consequences, those consequential choices, God is with you and God will help you work your way through it. Uh, you know, so spiritual poverty and financial debt is crushing America. Maybe it's crushing you. The, the, the solution is not winning the lottery because I guarantee it will go out the window if you don't have a plan. 
Do you have student debt, credit card debt? Do you have a mortgage or other fixed costs? Why do you have any of that? Ask yourself the question, why do I have these things? Now, by the way, sometimes debt is a strategic tool. Believe it or not, debt can be a strategic tool. But it's a horrible, horrible trough. Debt is not the place you, you feed yourself from. It can be a tool in certain situations. You go, debt is smart, you leverage debt. But most people are not smart in the way that they leverage debt. It replaces delayed gratification and it comes up to haunt them. So really, financial security is primarily a spiritual matter. I'm not spiritualizing, I'm saying this is a theological reality. It's a spiritual matter of aspiration, perspective, and expectation. Aspiration, what do you mean? I want to live in the shalom of God. I want to live in a life of prosperity. Oh, money? No, I said I want to live a life of prosperity. What does that start with? Character. Competency in managing your life. Perspective. I can't have what I can't afford. Perspective. What do I really need? And then expectations. What does the world owe me? Something or nothing. If I simplify my, my needs, all of a sudden, and my, my, and my wants, all of a sudden my life is, is a lot better. There's a, there's a survey done every year. Uh, it started out as a little side funny thing by econom, econo, economists at some Ivy League schools. Now it's become an actual subcategory of, of economics, and that is uh, figuring out what constitutes wealth and prosperity. And, of course, I'll go just to immediately to the summary. They've tried to say, how much is such a thing worth by way of satisfaction and, and uh, happiness? But the, but, the, but the takeaway is this. When you have low expectations and modest expectations, high aspirations for, you know, living a great life, but low expectations for what that requires of you, you're happier than you'll ever be. You're happier than you'll ever be. Low expectations a level of discipline, and you're a free person. Which leads us to the third thing. Well, before I say that, um, how we see and interpret what we have or don't have determines our sense of security. This is what that, that survey is telling us. So the final point is this. Third point, security starts with capitalizing your heart, not capitalizing your bank account. Capitalizing your heart not capitalizing your bank account. If I just had money, yes, money does solve things. But if your heart's not right, it doesn't solve your sense of insecurity. You can pay all your debts off. Somebody can come alongside and pay all your debts off. You still have this sinking feeling that, oh no, now what's going to happen? Something bad's going to happen. That's insecurity. It haunts you. It tortures you. It denies you sleep, rest, shalom. So security starts with capitalizing your heart, not capitalizing your account. Getting your heart aligned with God is foundational to building a plan for all kinds of security. But what if I get cancer? You're going to probably suffer and you might die. What if I lose my money? It'll be really hard. Well, that's helpful. Well, get your heart aligned with God and those things as they are will be what they are. You'll take them in stride. You might go through grief and loss and deep despair, but you're going to come out of that. Here's a very personal question. Do your financial habits reveal a mature follower of Jesus? By that I mean, do you pay your taxes? <laughs> now, if you can find ways to legally avoid them, God bless you. Do you tithe? Do you give money? 
And if you feel like, well, now Steve's asking for money for this church, okay, tithe and give it to another church. I don't care where you give your money. I'm just saying you can't grow if you don't tithe. Not because God is going to transact with you. I'm saying you are not free if you can't learn to be generous. You're not free if you can't learn to live on what you have, not on what you aspire to have. You're not free if you're indebted to somebody else. You're not free if you're living in envy and jealousy and resentment about other people who have what you don't have. Follow what I'm saying? Get your heart right with God and you'll be a free person. Solomon, I'm going to just read some scripture and wrap it up. Solomon, the wealthiest person in the world, summed it up this way. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Now the emphasis here is on loves. That is, it's a central feature in their heart. Let me reread it. If you love God, probably the money you have is enough. And if it's not, you'll wisely know in His name how to find ways to rectify that. If you love God, you'll probably be satisfied with your income because you say, you know, how do I use it wisely for Him? And instead of saying this too is meaningless, you're going to say, you know, my life is really meaningful. Jesus spoke a lot about it. He said it this way, two passages. First out of Matthew, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Two houses down from us, uh, the young woman who lives there, um, a wonderful gift from her father to live in this house, beautiful Carrera in the garage. Um, her, somebody broke into her house. Somebody just sat in front of her garage door and kept putting frequencies out until it opened, and then robbed her. There's robberies all over La Jolla. Can you imagine how many people feel like, do I have enough security? Maybe it's time to get that pit bull we've never liked, you know. So where do we store up stuff? Do you store up stuff and all of a sudden a guy like Bernie Madden, or whatever his name was, Mad Madorf or whatever, you know, comes along, yeah. Mad Dog, whatever his last name was, I don't know. <laughs> store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he goes on to say this stuff that sounds obscure, but he says the, the eye is a lamp of the body. <laughs> what you're looking at and focusing on and concentrating on either fills you with light or fills you with darkness. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be dis devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I was walking down Pearl one time, and back when, instead of the Sherman Williams paint store, it was a Ferrari dealership. And I'm walking down the street thinking about stuff, you know, and, and, and I hear this on the window, and I turn around, I look, and it's a guy I know. He's like, so I walk in, hey, what's up? He said, oh, I'm just having a really bad week. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Why are you in the Ferrari store? Can't be that bad of a week. He goes, well, no. I said, wait, it's a bad week, so you're going to buy a Ferrari. He goes, yeah, my wife would be really ticked off, but I'm like, how many bad weeks do you have a year? I said, really? He goes, I know, no, you, you, you have that whole faith thing going on. You wouldn't understand. I said, well, I, I think I understand. I, I understand you're having a really bad week, and this is a super great for you version of self-medication. Maybe there's some other issues that might help you avoid the price tag of this and the price tag of you paying here. He goes, yeah, I know, but... And so we just talked for a while. Another guy called me up. 
He had a Ferrari already. He goes, hey, I've um, been wrestling with the whole faith thing. Uh, is it okay for me to buy a new car? Because when I get upset and tense, I buy a new car. The guy had nine outrageous exotic cars in his biggest state. And he said, you're calling me to ask me if it's okay to buy a car. He, the absurdity of it. And I knew him really well. So I could, and he goes, yeah. I said, okay, the question is for whom? He goes, what? For whom do you want to buy the car? He goes, what do you mean for whom? Me. I said, well, then, uh, no, you shouldn't buy a car. Call me back when you want to buy a car for somebody else. He goes, oh, okay. What if I give my, one of my cars away and then buy a car? I go, now we're getting way too complicated on this, you know. Don't bargain with God. Jesus told us this parable. The ground of, certain, of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Love the story so far. This could be the beginning of a super wise story. You know what? I can feed a lot of people if I can get this grain out of the weather, keep it dry, and distribute it to the people who need it desperately. You'd be going, this is an inspiring story. But that's not where the story goes, right? Then I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now remember, we've said there's nothing wrong with it points taking life easy and eating, drinking, and be merry. But it's always contextual. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Why? Does God need anything? No. But being rich toward God sets us up to be generous with people. Where people have wealth, there should be social impact that reveals the power of that wealth. There's no sin to be wealthy. Never apologize for being successful. The question you want to ask yourself thoughtfully is, how am I leveraging this wealth, this success, this health, these connections to honor and glorify God and bless people in His name? If you're not asking that question, you're in, you're in great jeopardy. You're in great danger. If you're saying, I don't have much, so I don't really have that responsibility, you're in great danger. Nobody gets a hall pass. Nobody is exempt from being a good steward of what God has entrusted to us. Read Matthew 25 over and over and over again. And, and it'll disabuse all of us of any sense that we can rationalize away our responsibility to care for people. We don't indulge people and make them codependent and set them up for dependency that is destructive. But what we do is we say, what has been entrusted to me that would honor and glorify God and bless people that I can give them a hand up, not a hand out? Paul had this to say about it. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of evil. It's a root. It becomes an alternative to God and deep trust in Him. It's a, it's a veiled way of saying, I'm in control. Some people, he says, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you think about the amount of money just among Christians in our country and how little of it is distributed, we're the most generous country on the planet. The church in America is a very generous church relative to every other uh, marker. 
But when you look at the amount of wealth that we sit on, it drives us crazy at this church. We're trying to figure out how do we get the wealth out of this property and into the kingdom of God. We've, we've been having that conversation for a long time. How do we do that? And there's CCNRs on this property that would prohibit us from doing some things that we could really... So we're constantly wrestling with this. How do we, how do we get the most out of everything so that we can bless the most people with it? That's how we ought to be living our lives. Because at that point, we will feel more secure than we've ever, ever dreamt of feeling. Until we get to that place, we will be always insecure. There'll be an I, me, mine approach to life, and I never will have enough. So what does God tell us regarding our security? It's rooted in Him. It's rooted in faith, faith in Him applied wisely in the world. Being naive and uninformed is not a spiritual gift. Being wise and discerning about what's been entrusted to us and how the world works is our responsibility. Money matters. That's not an unspiritual, non-theological statement. The deeply theological statement, money matters. The love of money is deadly. The lack of money is equally <laughs> deadly. So keep your needs simple. Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, the one who makes Yom Kippur doable, who forgives us our sins and restores us to righteousness and entrusts to us the, the care of his creation, is redeeming the world. He's redeeming the insecure world and the insecure people in it. And our security is in his kingdom, not ours. So Lord Jesus, I pray that this would be a deep, deep reality in our lives. If right now we're panicking because we don't know how we're going to pay the rent or put food on the table, I pray that you'd meet us there. Meet us there, Lord. Give us relief. But then also, Lord, we pray you develop us so that we can be wise and discerning, good stewards. Lord, if we're so afraid that we have so much but we need a little bit more, I pray that you would disabuse us of that notion, that through your Holy Spirit you'd, you'd show us the folly of that approach and that thinking, but that, you, Lord, you'd also give us a deep, overwhelming sense of peace, shalom, that allows us to be wise, generous stewards. Help us, Lord, to be wise in the ways that we teach our children and grandchildren how to be good stewards, to not fear wealth or crave it, but to understand it for what it is. Lord, we pray that we could fall more deeply in love with you. That our trust would go deeper in you. That our knowledge of the ways of your kingdom would be at our fingertips so that we could make decisions wisely with great discernment in this world. Lord, we pray uh, for the peace that passes understanding, the shalom of God that you alone can give and that the world can't steal. So, Lord, we bring ourselves to you as offerings this morning, as we listen to this music, as we open our hearts and minds to you, as our hands to you are open wide. Uh, speak to us and heal us and prepare us to do great things that can only be explained by our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Well, let's wrap it up with this song. Sorry I've talked so long. Um, I hope it'll be helpful to each one of us. I don't want to be afraid every time I face the waves. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be afraid. 
I don't want to fear the storm just because I hear it roar. I don't want to fear the storm. I don't want to fear the storm. Peace be still, say the words and I will set my feet upon the sea till I'm dancing in the deep. Peace be still, you are here so it is well, even when my eyes can't see. I will trust the voice that speaks. I'm not gonna be afraid, cause those waves are only waves. I'm not gonna be afraid. I'm not gonna be afraid. I'm not gonna fear the storm. You are greater than the Lord. I'm not gonna fear the storm No, I'm not gonna fear at all Peace, be still Say the words and I will Set my feet upon the sea Till I'm dancing in the deep Yeah, peace, be still You are here so it is well Even
Thank you. Thank you. Scarcity and prosperity aren't the result of a bank statement. They're the result of your heart. Where is your heart? You move from scarcity to prosperity when you put your trust in the Lord. And all things follow from that first primary commitment. It's on that foundation that prosperity and security is built. If we can pray for you about anything that concerns you or anybody in your world, go right around the outside and out to the prayer garden, and there'll be people who'd love to pray with you for you or for whatever concerns you. Uh, if you want to contribute to the church, there's a little box there. You can uh, contribute other ways as well. The main thing is make your life an offering to God. That's the message of this morning. That's the message of this church. Let your life be an offering to Him in response to His gift to you. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk with Him in newness and fullness of life both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Enjoy the rest of your day.